Hi, this is Professor Corey Olson, and this is the third installment of my lecture series on The Hobbit. This lecture is called At the Roots of the Mountain, and I'm going to discuss Chapter 4 of The Hobbit, Overhill and Underhill, and Chapter 5, Riddles in the Dark. At the beginning of the last lecture, we looked at Bilbo's transition into the adventuring life, and I observed that Tolkien broke Bilbo in rather gently. He and the dwarves started off by riding through respectable country with good inns, then moved through the lands where people spoke strangely and sang strange songs, and then into the lone lands where they met the trolls. When they arrived at Rivendell, they were come to the very edge of the wild, as Gandalf explains on page 44. When they set out from Rivendell, they are entering the wild proper. In leaving what Tolkien calls the last homely house, they are not only leaving behind all homely and civilized comforts, they are entering a very dangerous and adventurous world indeed. Tolkien emphasizes this through his descriptions of Bilbo's view to the west as the party climbs the Misty Mountain Pass. The lands he has traveled through, which seem dangerous and uncomfortable enough, are laid out behind them far below. Bilbo knows that his own country of safe and comfortable things and his little hobbit hole are still behind him, but they are far, far away in the west where things were blue and faint. When the thunder battle begins, with the rocks shivering as thunder splits and goes rolling and tumbling into every cave and hollow, and the stone giants start throwing boulders all around them, we should not be surprised to hear that Bilbo had never seen or imagined anything of the kind. As Bilbo climbs the mountains and enters the wild, he is removed a practically infinite distance from his former Bagginsish world. When Bilbo and the dwarves are captured by the goblins, they are dragged down into a world even more dangerous and deadly than the world on top of the mountain. Even after Gandalf has rescued them from torture and death, the wizard's assessment of their situation on page 62 is very grim. No ponies, no food, and no knowing quite where we are, and hordes of angry goblins just behind. Imagine that for a hobbit who considered going without cakes at tea a painful duty, and who collapsed completely at the mention of the dangers of the journey. Imagine that even for a set of dwarves who justified their decision to investigate the troll's fire by commenting that anything was better than little supper, less breakfast, and wet clothes all the night. Bilbo is now thoroughly immersed in the world of danger and adventure. His transition period is officially over. In the midst of all this, however, we can actually see Bilbo beginning to settle into his new life. At the beginning of the goblin encounter, just before they're captured, Tolkien remarks that it turned out a good thing that night that they had brought little Bilbo with them after all. The investigation of the trolls may have been Bilbo's first professional assignment, but let's face it, he didn't really accomplish all that much there. Here, for the first time, he is genuinely useful. He still doesn't do all that much. All he does is have a dream, wake up, and shout. But it's a start, and he does help to save the dwarves' lives. As Tolkien would say, not for the last time. The capture by the goblins also clearly shows Bilbo and the dwarves to be operating now on very much the same level. The superiority with which Glowen described Bilbo as a little fellow bobbing and puffing on the mat has largely disappeared. Bilbo, bouncing along on the backs of various dwarves, comes over all Bagginsish, asking, Why, oh why, did I ever leave my hobbit hole? Bomber, who was carrying him at the time, responds grumpily, Why, oh why, did I ever bring a wretched little hobbit on a treasure hunt? but here the complaint draws them together instead of distinguishing them. Although they express themselves differently, and Bomber admits no regrets at coming on the trip, it is Bomber who is described as staggering along with the sweat dripping down his nose in his heat and terror. The dwarves may still talk a better game, and be more determined than Bilbo to pursue their quest, but they do not in general handle the adventure any better than Bilbo does. 
Even when Bilbo is being carried roughly along with the goblins in furious pursuit, the crucible of doubt and danger in which Bilbo's adventurous spirit is being formed and refined has not yet reached its hottest and most desperate point. That comes at the beginning of chapter 5, when Bilbo wakes up alone in the dark. Tolkien calls this moment, in which he finds the ring by chance, the turning point of his career, on page 64. The finding of the ring is certainly a turning point, not only in Bilbo's career, but in the history of the Third Age of Middle-earth. But that moment in which Bilbo finds himself alone is a turning point in another way as well. This is, in one sense, the worst things will ever get for him. He will face greater danger and even more intense solitude later on in his adventures, but he will be a different and a more experienced hobbit by then. He has faced ever-increasing dangers on his road, but he has always been a sort of passenger, merely an observer or a sufferer, doing nothing for himself except stirring up trouble with the trolls and shouting at the top of his lungs in the goblin's cave. Now he is thrown entirely upon his own resources. Mr. Baggins, who became altogether flummoxed at the mere mention of anything adventurous, is now, a few scant weeks later, forced to find his way alone to the other side of the Misty Mountains, through the tunnel network of murderous goblins who are hunting for him, without any food, any water, or even a source of light. It is at this point that Bilbo must actually become an adventurer, or perish. There in the dark he is removed as far as possible from the comfortable world of tea, cakes, and engagement tablets, from his bright hobbit hole as he poignantly remembers it amidst the darkness of the goblin caves. Here not even the memory of homely things can help him. His first impulse is towards a kind of Bagginsish escapism. He imagines himself frying bacon and eggs in his own kitchen at home. These memories cannot comfort him, but only make him miserabler. He then thinks to take comfort in a real rather than an imagined familiar pleasure, smoking. But after his failed attempt to light his pipe, he realizes that smoking would have been actively harmful. Goodness knows, Tolkien remarks, what the striking of matches and the smell of tobacco would have brought on him out of dark holes in that horrible place. Nothing from his Bagginsish life can help him at all now. What finally brings him comfort, significantly, is his sword. He draws it out and finds that it glows at the nearness of goblins, learning that it is an elvish blade like Thorin's and Gandalf's swords. This sword is an emphatically tookish thing to take comfort in. Remember, back in Bag End, a sword was for him one of the symbols of the adventurous life. When he felt a longing for adventure, first tentatively stirring within him as the dwarves sang their song, it manifested itself, on page 15, as a desire to wear a sword instead of a walking stick. That, of course, was only an image, which he immediately brushed away. Even after he finds his little sword in the troll's cave and sticks it in his pants, he seems to forget about it most of the time. Now he discovers he has not just any sword, but a blade made in Gondolin for the goblin wars of which so many songs had sung. He is not only drawing his own sword for the first time, but he is seeing himself as part of a huge and grand adventure that spans whole continents and millennia, through ages of wonder and terror. Instead of feeling overwhelmed, he is now quite pleased. It felt rather splendid, he admits. We may also remember how, in the moment in which he overhears Glowen's insult and bursts back into his sitting-room to volunteer for the journey, he wanted to be thought fierce. Looking at his sword, he realizes that that could become a reality— that he could make the goblins themselves think him fierce, for he had noticed that such weapons made a great impression on goblins that came on them suddenly. The commitment he made in Bag End to a life of adventure had been almost purely theoretical. Now, in this moment, he begins to make it a reality. He has passed the turning point in his career. I mentioned in the previous lecture that the description in the Fellowship of the Ring of the Troll episode as Bilbo's first successful adventure seems rather too nostalgic. 
That label can be much more accurately applied to Bilbo's meeting with Gollum. I'm going to look at this scene very carefully, as it is one of the central episodes of this book and of The Lord of the Rings. But before we leave the goblins behind, I want to pause and take a look at Tolkien's depiction of them. The goblins will be stock characters throughout Tolkien's stories, and Tolkien gives us some interesting insights into their nature through this first encounter with them, and especially through the harsh and cruel little song they sing as they drive the dwarves and Bilbo down into their stronghold. You can find the song on pages 56 and 58. The first verse of their song is mere plot summary. Clap, snap, the black, crack, grip, grab, pinch, nab, and down, down to goblin town you go, my lad. Although the narrative of the verse doesn't tell us anything we didn't know, the style is very illuminating. It is almost all action. Six of the nine words in the first two lines are verbs, and all the verbs are in the present tense. The goblins are not really telling the story of the capture, they are reliving the moment, savoring its violence and action. This first verse of the song is a kind of poetic highlight reel for the goblins. It is also extremely simple and primitive. Except for the word goblin, every single word in the first verse is monosyllabic. This doesn't just show a lack of intellectual and artistic sophistication on the part of the goblins. Their poetic medium fits its content perfectly. The monosyllables that they choose are mostly onomatopoetic, that is, they are merely violent sounds turned into words, words like clap and snap, and even crack, which is one of their few nouns. Clap, snap, the black, crack, is so full of repeating explosive consonants that the very sound of the line is violent. The result is a poetic verse which would sound harsh, violent, and wicked, even if you didn't know what the words meant. The second stanza starts off in the same mode, with four more violent, onomatopoetic words. Clash, crash, crush, smash, hammer and tongs, knocker and gongs, pound, pound, far underground, ho, ho, my lad. From the second line on, however, we see that this verse is not simply a review of present cruelty. This is a glimpse into the larger goblin world. In that world, we see that the crashing and smashing is not all purely, or at least directly, destructive. The goblins, like dwarves, are smiths and craftsmen. In fact, this stanza may well remind us of the dwarves' own song in chapter 1. The dwarves of old made mighty spells, while hammers fell like ringing bells, in places deep where dark things sleep, in hollow halls beneath the fells. Now that sounds a lot more attractive than pound, pound, far underground, but nevertheless the two songs seem to be describing the same thing. Tolkien's later prose description of the goblins on page 59 makes this same connection. He explains that goblins can tunnel and mine as well as any but the most skilled dwarves, and, also like the dwarves, they are good smiths of weapons and tools. Dwarves and goblins seem to share strong professional affinities. Just as the dwarf song reveals to Bilbo the desire of the hearts of dwarves, so the third verse of the goblin song reveals the true hearts of goblins. Swish, smack, whip, crack, batter and beat, yammer and bleat, work, work, nor dare to shirk, while goblins quaff and goblins laugh, round and round far underground, below, my lad. Again we get the monosyllabic verbs, but this time, instead of the pounding of hammers, we get the cracking of whips. The delight of the goblins is not in the act of craftsmanship, as the dwarves is. The goblins' pleasure is in forcing others to do their work for them. Tolkien explains that goblins usually don't go to the trouble of smithying or mining for themselves. They prefer to exploit prisoners and slaves that have to work till they die for want of air and light. 
They are both cruel and lazy, as we can see in the lines Work, work, nor dare to shirk, while goblins quaff and goblins laugh, which show the goblins imagining lounging around and drinking while mocking their slaves. Goblins are abandoned to wickedness. Even their few positive attributes, their cleverness and skill, are thoroughly warped, devoted to cruelty. Unlike dwarves, they make no beautiful things. They specialize in instruments of torture, in machines and bombs. In a rare moment that clearly reveals Tolkien's own views on war and military technology, Tolkien speculates that it is not unlikely that they have invented some of the machines that have since troubled the world, especially the ingenious devices for killing large numbers of people at once. In the pleasure they take in cruelty and destruction, goblins show themselves to be the complete opposite of elves. The elves, in their light and silly song in chapter 3, took delight in everything they saw and found in the world, savoring its beauty and responding with laughter. The last three verses of their song simply dissolve into delighted laughter, ending with ha-ha. The goblins also end the second stanza with laughter, but their ho-ho, my lad, couldn't be any more different. Their pleasure is in the fear of their captives, and in the gleeful anticipation of their imminent suffering. The relationship between the goblins and the dwarves is more complicated, though. The two are not opposites, as the elves and goblins are. In fact, they are alike in several ways. They have similar interests and skills— they both live in the deep places of the earth, and both are associated with the dark. The dwarves, you will remember, tell Bilbo at Bag End, We like the dark, as they are preparing to discuss their dark business. The goblins' business is really dark. When Bilbo and the dwarves are taken into their tunnels, they are surrounded by deep, deep dark, such as only goblins that have taken to living in the heart of the mountains can see through. Both dwarves and goblins like the dark, even though the goblins' darkness is much darker than that of the dwarves. Indeed, the goblins are so thoroughly bound to the dark that they cannot abide the sun. The connection with darkness is not merely literal, of course. The goblins, as we have seen in their song, have hearts that are completely darkened by cruelty and wickedness. But the dwarves' hearts are not free from darkness either, we must recall. Their song shows tendencies towards vengefulness and a greedy possessiveness. The dwarves are certainly not evil, but unlike the elves, they are capable of meeting the goblins on their own level, underground, out of the light of the sun. The terrible dwarf and goblin war that is referred to several times was a war of vengeance, fought by the dwarves to bring bloody retribution upon the goblins for the slaying of Thorin's grandfather, Thror. We mustn't forget that the goblins who hunt Bilbo and the dwarves so bloodthirstily in these chapters are doing so for the same reason, a desire to avenge their murdered chief. Although there are some similarities, however, Tolkien's emphasis is primarily on the differences. The dwarves are much better and much nicer than the goblins. We can see this contrast rather neatly if we compare the goblin's song with the song the dwarves sing in Bilbo's kitchen in chapter 1. Chip the glasses and crack the plates, blunt the knives and bend the forks. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. Smash the bottles and burn the corks. That's only the first of three verses. You can find it on page 12 and 13. This song, like the goblin's song, is dominated by the harsh monosyllabic verbs that occur twice a line in all but line three, which forms the repeated catchphrase of the song. The dwarves even use several of the same verbs that the goblins use, such as crack, smash, and pound. It is a song about violence and destruction being done at the expense of a helpless victim. There are two big differences between the songs, however. The first, of course, is that the violence threatened is quite tame and domestic— Blunting knives and bending forks is a far cry from laughing mockingly while starving, bleeding slaves work themselves to death amidst darkness and fear, which is what the goblins sing about. 
The second and even more important difference is that the dwarves don't really mean what they're singing. They're just teasing Bilbo. Immediately after their song, Tolkien assures us that, of course, they did none of these dreadful things. The goblins, by contrast, mean every word of their song. The first verse of their song is about what just happened, the capture in the cave. The second and third verses describe what is about to happen, the imprisonment, torture, and slavery of the dwarves in Bilbo, in which they will be whipped and made to pound, pound far underground until they die. Immediately afterwards, Tolkien assures us that the goblins plan to start making all the dreadful things in their song come true as soon as possible. They get out their whips and, with a swish smack, make the dwarves get started with the yammering and bleeding right away. The dwarves may have certain dark tendencies, but the goblins are thoroughly and determinedly wicked. A clear understanding of the character of the goblins gives us an important context for Tolkien's introduction of Gollum. Gollum is older than the goblins, and lives deeper in the heart of the mountains than even they do. The goblins might live in impenetrable darkness and fear the sun, but in Gollum's introduction on page 67, Tolkien says that Gollum himself is as dark as darkness. The goblins, we are told, are cruel but not brave. They will catch anyone they can as long as it is done smart and secret and the prisoners are not able to defend themselves. Gollum preys on the goblins themselves in exactly the same style, taking care that he is never found out, catching and throttling goblins from behind if they come down near his lake. Even the goblins fear Gollum. To them, he is something unpleasant lurking down there by the lake, an unknown and shadowy figure of fear. As we begin to look at Gollum's character, I'd like to make a few general notes about Gollum as Tolkien represented him in The Hobbit. Gollum, of course, is going to be a very important character in The Lord of the Rings, and I'll spend a lot of time talking about him when we get there. Through the Gollum we see in The Hobbit, Tolkien is very deliberately preparing us for the role Gollum plays in The Lord of the Rings. In fact, although The Hobbit was written almost 20 years before The Lord of the Rings was published, I think it is fair to say that the Gollum we read about in The Hobbit is actually based on the Gollum of The Lord of the Rings, and not the other way around. I know that seems strange, but here's how it happened. When Tolkien sat down to write The Lord of the Rings, he envisioned it as a sequel to The Hobbit. He therefore was searching for some link that he could establish between the story of The Hobbit and the later story, some story germ, as Tolkien might say, that he could take from The Hobbit and grow into a new story. The link he decided on was Bilbo's ring, and it was in the process of formulating the plot of The Lord of the Rings that he decided that Bilbo's ring would be much more than just a very handy invisibility ring. Making that change in the nature of the ring did not require a whole lot of revision of The Hobbit, but it did require a reconsideration of the Riddles in the Dark chapter in general, and of the character of Gollum in particular. In 1951, therefore, he published a revised edition of The Hobbit, in which he had made some very important changes to his original depiction of Gollum, making him much more like the Gollum that we read about in The Fellowship of the Ring, and finally meet in The Two Towers. I will talk more in this lecture, and also at the beginning of the next lecture, about some of those particular changes that he made from the first edition. I should also mention that in my discussion of the first edition of The Hobbit, I am drawing from Douglas Anderson's annotations in The Annotated Hobbit, a book that I highly recommend. I've included a link to it on my textbook page if you'd like to check it out. Before I get any further into discussing Gollum, however, I want to make sure to emphasize one thing very clearly. The Gollum that we see in Peter Jackson's films is very different from Tolkien's Gollum. I don't mean this as a criticism. In fact, for my money, what Peter Jackson and company did with Gollum is one of the most interesting and successful departures from Tolkien's text in all of the films. I love the scenes where the films portray Gollum arguing with himself, depicting a divide between Gollum's good nature and his temptations to evil and murder, and the scene in The Two Towers in which he sort of exercises himself is very powerful and moving. 
But when we are reading and studying the books, we must remember that that Gollum is a creation of the movies and different from Tolkien's Gollum in some important ways. In The Hobbit, Bilbo does overhear Gollum having a debate with himself at one point. When Bilbo puts on the ring and escapes Gollum's notice, Gollum stops and argues with himself about what he should do, with the newly invisible Bilbo listening on nearby. The debate, which you can find on page 78, is not a moral struggle between his good side and his bad side, however. The difference between the two debating perspectives is merely that one is optimistic and the other pessimistic. His first voice says that there's no use searching for the ring since he's sure Bilbo has it. The second responds, more hopefully, that perhaps he doesn't, and that anyway, Bilbo doesn't know what the ring can do. And in any case, Bilbo is not going anywhere because he is lost. The first perspective cynically points out that Bilbo is tricksy, and gloomily suggests that Bilbo probably does know what the ring does, and was probably even lying about being lost. The second responds, with waning optimism, that Bilbo won't escape completely away with the ring, because the goblins will certainly catch him. The first responds in panic and terror, pointing out that the goblins capturing Bilbo and getting the ring would certainly be the very worst disaster of all, and would mean certain death. To this, the second perspective quickly agrees, and the debate ends with Gollum scampering off to cut Bilbo off from the back door. We can see differences in these two perspectives. One is quicker to think evil of others, and to imagine terrible things happening to himself, but neither is kind, friendly, or gentle at all. When Tolkien made the major changes to the first edition of Chapter 5, he changed Gollum in two important ways. The first was that he made Gollum more wicked. In the first edition, he is still predatory and murderous. He still hopes to kill and eat Bilbo. But he is also fair and comparatively decent. He is rather touchingly concerned about not breaking the rules of the game. When he loses, he is determined to fulfill his end of the bargain no matter what, because he learned long, long ago never, never to cheat at the riddle game. There is one moment that points to the change in Gollum's character from the first to the later edition very interestingly. It is a line that Tolkien keeps unchanged in the revised edition, but whose context he alters significantly. In both editions, when Bilbo wins the game, Gollum leaves in his boat to go to his island and get the ring. Bilbo, seeing him go, thinks Gollum was just making an excuse and did not mean to come back. He thinks this in both editions, and is wrong both times, but for opposite reasons. In the first edition, Gollum is supposed to be fetching Bilbo a reward for winning the game. Bilbo thinks he is sneaking off and trying to get out of fulfilling the bargain, but he is wrong. Gollum has every intention of being true to his word. He turns out to be a better and more honest kind of creature than Bilbo gave him credit for. In the revised edition, Gollum leaves, vaguely saying he needs to get some things that will help in guiding Bilbo to the exit. Bilbo still thinks he is sneaking off to get out of his end of the bargain, and he is still wrong. This time, though, he is wrong because Gollum was only leaving to get his ring in return invisible to strangle him. Gollum is angry now and hungry. This time, Bilbo is wrong because Gollum is a far worse and more treacherous creature than Bilbo had believed. Not only does Tolkien not depict Gollum as divided in his mind between his good and evil impulses, he actually removes almost all of the good impulses that he had originally attributed to Gollum. I mentioned, though, that there were two ways in which the revised Gollum is different. The first is that he is more thoroughly wicked. The second is that he is more tragic and pitiable. Gollum may not have a good side, but he is not simply and straightforwardly wicked either. Tolkien emphasizes his misery, the sadness of his life. 
For instance, when Gollum suggests the riddle game to Bilbo in the first edition, Tolkien tells us that he used to play the riddle game at times before the goblins came, and he was cut off from his friends far under the mountain. There's nothing especially sad here. I mean, it's too bad that Gollum hasn't been able to hang out with his subterranean friends as much since the mountains became infested with goblins, but it's not really all that big a deal. It kind of makes you wonder who exactly those friends were, though. I mean, the Balrog? The huge man-eating squid creature from the Fellowship of the Ring? Who are we talking about here? Anyway, in the later edition, Tolkien writes on page 68 that he used to play the riddle game with other funny creatures sitting in their holes in the long, long ago, before he lost all his friends and was driven away, alone, and crept down, down into the dark under the mountains. Now Tolkien starts our relationship with Gollum with this terribly sad glimpse into his personal history. We learn that he once had friends and a home in the world above, but that he lost them, that he is only living in the caves because he was driven there, and that although he is now as dark as the darkness, he is not native to the dark. When Gandalf tells Frodo Gollum's story at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, he calls it a sad story, and we can already see from the hints in this one sentence that it really is. Tolkien's revised Gollum is exactly what Tolkien calls him on page 74, a miserable, wicked creature. The clearest insight that Tolkien gives us into the character of Gollum, and into his peculiar relationship with Bilbo, is through the riddles that they tell. I'd like to go through all nine riddles, paying close attention to what each riddle itself suggests, and also to how the riddles fit together to illustrate the intriguing dynamics between the two characters. You can find the riddles starting on page 68 and going through page 72. Gollum's first riddle is the mountain riddle. What has roots as nobody sees, is taller than trees, up, up it goes, and yet never grows. This riddle has an obvious personal relevance to Gollum. He lives in the mountains, having left the river valleys ages before. The emphasis of the riddle is on the grandeur and mystery of mountains. They are taller and greater than the mere trees of the valleys. His reference to nobody seeing the roots of the mountains is touched with a slightly boastful irony that shows his desire to aggrandize himself as well as his mountain home. He, Gollum, has seen them. He alone lives there, beneath even the tunnels of the goblins, down at the very roots of the mountain, as Tolkien says on page 67. Gollum indirectly depicts himself as an exception to the general rule, the one person who has seen what no one else has, the knower of secrets. In The Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf will describe Gollum as someone who was always interested in roots and beginnings, who looks on the misty mountains and thinks, The roots of those mountains must be roots indeed. There must be great secrets buried there, which have not been discovered since the beginning. In this first riddle, we can hear echoes of the pride and fascination that drove him so deep into the mountains. The final note of the riddle, however, points in a different direction. If the first two lines emphasize the greatness both of Gollum's knowledge and of his mountain home itself, the last two lines hint at his despair. The mountains, though great, are not alive. They don't grow. There is a stagnation here, which again recalls Gandalf's version of Gollum's story. When he got to the mountains, Gandalf explains, Gollum found that all the great secrets under the mountains had turned out to be just empty night. There was nothing more to find out, nothing worth doing, only a nasty, furtive eating and resentful remembering. The greatness, both of the mountains and of Gollum, is a lifeless greatness, full of darkness and loneliness. Gollum's first riddle, therefore, turns out to be a little window into Gollum's life and self-image. Bilbo's response is not quite so revealing. His first riddle is the simple and relatively commonplace teeth riddle. Thirty white horses on a red hill, 
First they champ, then they stamp, then they stand still. Tolkien admits that Bilbo only told this riddle because the idea of eating was rather on his mind. It is suggested rather by the unpleasant circumstances in which he finds himself than by anything in his own character. Still, even this idea that Bilbo associates with eating points to some plain differences between him and Gollum. The image of the thirty white horses on a hill, champing and stamping, is a fine, lively, and attractive one. Gollum's remark that he has only six horses, and I can't imagine they are terribly white, paints a very different kind of picture. Gollum's snarling, hissing, snaggletooth mouth is adapted to a sort of eating that is worlds away from the dignified, orderly, and polished eating of Bilbo's dining room or breakfast on the lawn. Gollum's world, again in Gandalf's words, is a world of nasty, furtive eating. There is little of the cavalry charge about Gollum's teeth. Gollum's second riddle, like the first, sheds more light onto Gollum's grim existence. This one is his wind riddle. Voiceless it cries, wingless flutters, toothless bites, mouthless mutters. This riddle is rather creepy in what it depicts the wind is doing, crying, biting, muttering. The overall effect, however, is rather pathetic, in the sense of being full of pathos. What Gollum emphasizes about the wind is what it doesn't have. It has no voice, no wings, no teeth, no mouth. There is a kind of helplessness about this description. The heart of the riddle, of course, is a paradox. The wind has none of those things, and yet still performs all those actions. Yet the actions themselves are so futile, so desolate, that that only increases the pathos. The wind doesn't roar, it cries. It doesn't soar, it only flutters. The wind is described as being nobody and having nothing, and yet still always biting, always crying, always muttering. This, of course, is also a perfect description of Gollum's own nightmare reality, alone at the roots of the mountain. Bilbo's response is a riddle he makes up himself on the spot, and it's a fascinating rejoinder to Gollum's bleak wind riddle. This is the Sun on the Daisies riddle. An eye and a blue face saw an eye and a green face. That eye is like to this eye, said the first eye, but in low place, not in high place. Certainly, in tone and subject, it is as different from the wind riddle as can be. Where Gollum emphasizes how disembodied the wind is, Bilbo personifies the sun and the flower, characterizing them as eyes and human faces. Where Gollum speaks of the voiceless and inarticulate muttering of the wind, Bilbo gives us the very words of the sun itself. Where Gollum's riddle is grim and almost despairing, Bilbo's is full of light, cheerfulness, and the memory of comfortable and beautiful things. This riddle hinges on the etymology of the word daisy. In Old English, Anglo-Saxon, this flower was originally named the day's eye, the dye as aia, both because the yellow center looked like the sun, and because the petals fold in to conceal that center at night and unfold again with the dawn. In the Middle Ages, the sun itself was often compared to an eye, being called the eye of the world. The riddle plays on these names, therefore, characterizing the similarity and relationship between the sun and the daisy. I should mention here that Tolkien wrote the poetry for all these riddles himself, even though many of the riddles are based on other similar riddles that he would have come across. This riddle is the most completely and characteristically Tolkienian, however, being linguistic in nature and, what's more, hearkening back to the Anglo-Saxon language, which was one of Tolkien's passions. Anyway, we can think about this riddle on two different levels. On the simplest level, it is a riddle full of bright and lively things that are very dear to Bilbo, the more so because he is currently cut off from them the sun, the blue sky, the green fields, and the flowers, of which he is especially fond, as we should remember from chapter 1. 
When Bilbo is first dragged down into the darkness of the goblin caves on page 56, he starts longing for his hobbit hole again, but this time, significantly, for his nice bright hobbit hole, so different from the morally and literally dark goblin tunnels. Bilbo clearly is missing the light and air of the outside world, and his riddle remembers them fondly. The riddle also suggests some interesting things about Bilbo's worldview. By appealing to the likeness between the daisy and the sun, Bilbo establishes the connection between the everyday things of his world and the greater order that surrounds them. Notice that the riddle is essentially a narrative given from the sun's perspective. The sun looks down on the world from the heavens and considers the daisies, how they grow in the fields. We then get an actual direct quotation of the sun's remarks upon noticing the humble daisy. The sun emphasizes the connection between the two, recognizing that the flower is a reflection, an echo, of itself in the world. We can hardly build a whole theology on this one riddle, but it's suggestive. While Gollum is depicting emptiness and solitude, Bilbo is recognizing that the things in his daily world have a place within the higher and greater order of creation. Bilbo's daisy riddle is not consciously a rebuttal to Gollum's wind riddle. When Gollum in turn responds with his third riddle, however, it is explicitly a retaliation for the sunlit riddle that he found so vexing. He finds Bilbo's riddle, that ordinary above-ground everyday sort of riddle, tiring, and it puts him out of temper. His response is something a bit more difficult and more unpleasant, his darkness riddle. It cannot be seen, cannot be felt, cannot be heard, cannot be smelt. It lies behind stars and under hills, and empty holes it fills. It comes first and follows after, ends life, kills laughter. The way this riddle serves as a response to Bilbo's daisy riddle is quite obvious. Frustrated and irritated by Bilbo's riddle about light, Gollum tells a riddle about darkness. This riddle, like Gollum's previous riddles, also has its autobiographical aspects. Tolkien, you'll remember, describes Gollum as dark as darkness, and Gollum begins his riddle by describing the dark as a sort of idealized version of himself as this stealthy and sneaky hunter. Remember, he's getting hungry. Gollum hunts by stealth, invisible with his ring, unnoticed until he has his fingers around the throat of his victim. Those first two lines, therefore, are like the ultimate version of the hunting Gollum, undetectable, irresistible. The sun on the daisies may give us a glimpse of Bilbo's world that he longs for. The dark is Gollum's true world, his perfected self. The last four lines give us perhaps a clearer insight into Gollum's larger worldview than any other part of the text. Just as Bilbo's daisy riddle gives a small glimpse into Bilbo's metaphysical framework, so the darkness riddle lays out Gollum's own dark theology. Like he did in the mountain riddle, Gollum emphasizes the grandeur and majesty of a thing that is associated with him personally. By pointing out that the darkness lies behind stars and under hills, Gollum asserts that the darkness his darkness, encloses both the daisies and the sun, both the lower and the higher worlds of Bilbo's riddle. Listening to and thinking about Bilbo's riddle invites one to think of the broad, bright world above, and to think in turn of Gollum's dark, shut-in world as small and pitiful in comparison. Gollum shifts the ground here, claiming that darkness is in fact greatest of all, and that it is the sunlit world that is the small, confined space in truth, enclosed both above and below by the darkness, a mere bubble of brightness in an infinite expanse of night. He broadens this point even further by stating that the darkness comes first and follows after, showing that the dark encloses the light not only in space, but in time as well. All of time and space, themselves finite, are bounded by the infinite darkness. 
The last line speaks not only of the stature of the darkness, but of its nature as well. This darkness Gollum speaks of is not a mere emptiness, a void. The darkness ends life and kills laughter. Gollum characterizes the darkness as the enemy, the destroyer, not only of life, but of liveliness, of the kind of joy and delight that might be associated with the sun and the daisies. When I said that the last lines of this riddle suggest Gollum's theology, therefore, I do not mean merely to claim for Gollum a kind of nihilism, a belief that nothing really matters and nothing really exists. That's not how Gollum talks about the darkness. In this riddle, empty holes are not really empty. They are filled with darkness. It is a positive thing. At one point in the Silmarillion, Sauron, champion of evil in both the Second and Third Ages, speaks of darkness in similar terms to Gollum's. He says that beyond the world lies the ancient darkness, and claims that the Lord of Darkness is the Lord of all, and the giver of freedom. Darkness alone, says Sauron, is worshipful. If Bilbo's daisy riddle hints at his sense of a divine order in which the mortal world reflects the glory of the heavenly world, Gollum's darkness riddle responds with echoes of the greatest wickedness that mortals have ever engaged in, the worship of evil itself in the place of God. Bilbo's next riddle seems like an almost comical letdown from the scope and horror of Gollum's darkness riddle. A box without hinges, key, or lid, yet golden treasure inside is hid. This is the egg riddle, and Bilbo himself doesn't think much of it. Tolkien tells us he views it as a mere stalling tactic. Ironically, however, it proves the hardest riddle for Gollum to guess of any that Bilbo asks. In some sense, therefore, it seems to serve as a kind of rebuttal, it gets to Gollum and leaves him flustered. There are two things that are conspicuous about this riddle. The first is that it's about golden treasure. I mean, the whole purpose of Bilbo's journey is to seek a golden treasure that lies under a mountain, and here is Bilbo, under the mountains, making a riddle about golden treasure. But the treasure that he speaks of is not golden harps and jeweled crowns and necklaces. It is a very different kind of treasure. It is the treasure of life itself, the egg yolk that will develop into the hatchling that emerges from the egg. This is also a treasure that cannot be burgled. It is a chest that cannot be opened without destroying the treasure inside. The second conspicuous thing about the egg riddle is how it follows upon the dark riddle. Gollum has just described how darkness ends life, and Bilbo immediately tells a riddle about the beginning of life, as if reasserting the life and liveliness that Gollum would seek to suppress. Now we mustn't get too carried away with the larger metaphysical implications of the riddle. There can be no doubt that when Bilbo is thinking of eggs, he is thinking primarily, as he was a few pages earlier, of frying bacon and eggs in his own kitchen at home. This, it would appear, is the golden treasure Bilbo's really interested in. But the thought of frying eggs in his nice bright hobbit hole is still in itself a perfectly appropriate rejoinder to the darkness riddle. Remember that darkness, according to Gollum, kills laughter in addition to ending life. A nice second breakfast on the lawn is, in its own way, no less a defiance of the power of darkness than is the life of an embryo inside a living egg. Gollum's guessing of the egg riddle again points to the differences between the two characters. The memory that finally recalls the answer to his mind is the memory of sucking eggs. Here is an activity that is outside of either positive association with eggs— here is neither the preservation of new life, nor the peace, comfort, and prosperity of fried eggs. Gollum can only barely recall eggs, but when he does, he can only remember sucking the life out of them. Gollum's fish riddle steps down from the grandiosity of the darkness riddle, and seems rather to match the level of Bilbo's own egg riddle. Alive without breath, as cold as death, 
never thirsty, ever drinking, all in mail, never clinking. The egg riddle responds to the darkness riddle by reasserting life and liveliness. The fish riddle comes back by parodying life, confounding it with death itself by characterizing a living creature as unbreathing and cold as the grave. The fish's relationship to the water is also twisted. To Gollum's fish, the water is not essential and life-giving. It is superfluous, a continual and unwanted engorgement. This riddle also, like the wind riddle, resonates with Gollum's own world. In Gollum's dark home at the roots of the mountains, the fish have changed over time. When Bilbo first encounters the lake on page 66, he thinks about the fish, whose fathers swam in goodness only knows how many years ago, and never swam out again, while their eyes grew bigger and bigger from trying to see in the blackness. The fish thus form an instructive parallel for Gollum's own career, and their description recalls his at many points. Like Gollum, the fish themselves were once wholesome and natural, but they found that the journey into the dark heart of the mountains was a one-way trip, becoming twisted by their starvation for light until they are merely nasty, slimy things with big, bulging eyes wriggling in the water. Gollum's description of the fish's drinking also recalls his own wretched existence. Fish are never thirsty, ever drinking, living a life of continual consumption and continual dissatisfaction. Bilbo's world, as just recalled to us by his egg riddle, is a world of eggs and bacon and deep sighs of contentment. Gollum's is a world of insatiable desire and perpetual loathing. Bilbo's response is simple but typical, taking the subject of Gollum's previous riddle and placing it in a strikingly Baggins-ish setting. No legs lay on one leg, two legs sat near on three legs, four legs got some. Here Bilbo takes Gollum's parody of warm-blooded life, the fish, and makes it the centerpiece of a very cozy domestic scene, a man sitting on a stool and eating his dinner off a little table while his cat sits purring at his side is an image of contentment utterly alien to the world of Gollum's gasping, bulgy-eyed fish. You can practically see the warm fire blazing next to him, and I imagine he will light up his pipe afterwards. Notice also the camaraderie of man and cat sharing their meal. It is in every way a warm-blooded, peaceful, friendly scene that Bilbo invokes. It is no wonder that Gollum might have had some trouble guessing it, if he had not already been thinking of fish. Gollum's final riddle, his hard and horrible riddle, is indeed a riddle about finality itself. This thing all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal, slays king, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. Gollum describes time as the destroyer of everything. The riddle illustrates a concept commonly associated with time, especially during the Renaissance, and articulated in the Latin phrase tempus adox rerum, commonly translated time devours all things. What's particularly interesting about Gollum's treatment of this traditional idea is how systematic it is. Look at how Gollum lists the things devoured by time. In line two, time destroys living things, the bright and comfortable world that Bilbo's riddles have so persistently recalled. In lines three and four, it destroys iron, steel, and stone, the harsher and darker world of the dwarves and goblins. In line four, it destroys civilization itself, laying waste to order and human society. This reference to king in town is particularly relevant in a story that will end with the return of a king and both the destruction and the reestablishment of towns. Finally, even the high mountain is beaten down by time, and thus Gollum includes his own world in the general destruction. 
The last line of Gollum's last riddle brings us back to his first riddle, the mountain riddle in which he spoke so boastingly of his own dark and stony home. The mountain may be the last to go in the time riddle, but Gollum still acknowledges that it will go. Gollum's riddle speaks of final hopelessness, the end even of his own life and world. Gollum is very ancient. Even in the more cheerful first edition of The Hobbit, he has been in his lonely lake since before the arrival of the goblins in the mountains. Through his age-long and miserable experience of life, he is well aware of the passage of the years, which have gnawed, ground, and beaten him, until, like the blind fish, he has been warped and stunted beyond recognition. This last riddle echoes with a stubbornness and a despair that speaks powerfully of both the wickedness and the misery of Gollum's existence. The world that it reveals is horrible indeed, and to it Bilbo has no response. Although their riddles illustrate how different are Gollum's and Bilbo's worlds, Tolkien also invites us at several points to see the connections between them. Gollum's riddles may reveal a viewpoint alien to his own, but Bilbo guesses several of them because he had heard something rather like them before. Gollum, as well, is enabled to guess some of Bilbo's riddles only because he still retains memories of days when he had been less lonely and sneaky and nasty, of days when he seemed to live a fairly Bagginsish life, with his grandmother in a hole in a bank by a river. Gollum's dim memories show us that Gollum was not always as he now is, and they also contain an implicit warning for Bilbo himself. Bilbo, too, is undergoing a change, a transition from his quiet and happy life in his hole in the side of a hill. Gollum's memories are a reminder that such transitions are not always for the better, and even Bagginses can descend into corruption and wickedness. Bilbo does not seem to see this connection at first. When he hears Gollum's cries of misery upon discovering the loss of his precious ring, Bilbo is untouched and could not find much pity in his heart, even though he does find Gollum's weeping horrible to listen to. In the final moments of his meeting with Gollum, however, Bilbo sees at last the full implications of Gollum's condition. At the mouth of the exit tunnel, on page 80, Bilbo faces a serious moral crisis. His panic and his desperation to escape at first prompt him to brutal and ruthless action. He feels that he must stab the vile thing, put its eyes out, kill it. His moral sense quickly reasserts itself, however. Indeed, he swings the other direction, and is even over-generous in his assessment of his enemy. He says to himself that Gollum had not actually threatened to kill him, or tried to, yet, even though both of these things are not quite true. Gollum had tried to catch and kill him when he ran up the passage, and Gollum's open discussion of whether or not Bilbo would be scrumptiously crunchable certainly constitutes a threat. But Bilbo's generosity here is not purely objective. It is driven by his sudden understanding in this moment of Gollum's life and world, of the connection between himself and Gollum. He imagines himself in Gollum's position, lost in endless unmarked days without light or hope of betterment, hard stone, cold fish, sneaking and whispering. He trembles at the thought, gripped by a pity mixed with horror. The result is a new strength and resolve that literally propels him back to the light he was so desperate to regain. His moral choice becomes a leap of faith, a leap in the dark and out of the dark, and he successfully rises above both of the dark ends that awaited him there, either to be killed by Gollum or to become him. Gollum's final action in this story, his blood-curdling shriek, filled with hatred and despair, reasserts the differences between Gollum and Bilbo and emphasizes the significance of Bilbo's moral choice. 
Gollum is given over to hopelessness, left with nothing but eternal hatred for the one who has just had mercy on him. Bilbo persists in running towards the hope of escape, the back door, despite the fact that his compassion for Gollum's misery now brings his heart to his mouth. At the beginning of the book, as I noted at the start of my last lecture, Tolkien invites us to judge whether Bilbo gained anything in the end. In chapter 5, we're still far from the end, but we can already begin to see what Bilbo is gaining. Bilbo has passed the turning point in his career. He has ceased to be a passive victim of his adventure, and he has embraced his new adventurous life. He has even come to take pleasure in seeing his own life as part of the great grand stories of adventure that he had listened to, with obvious pleasure despite their tookishness, even when he had lived in the Shire. When Gollum asks him about his sword, he proudly calls it a blade which came out of Gondolin, openly boasting about his new-found connection with the legends of old. When he discovers that the ring he had found by accident was a magic ring, the likes of which he had heard about in old, old tales, his head was in a whirl of hope and wonder. Bilbo has come to see that, though adventures may in truth be nasty, uncomfortable things that make you late for dinner, as he said in chapter 1, it can also be rather splendid to be a part of one of the great stories. The first adventure that he meets with after he adopts this positive frame of mind, however, shows a very serious side to this new world. In Gollum, Bilbo finds something not only worse than going without bed and breakfast, but worse even than being tortured and killed by the goblins. In Gollum, he meets his moral opposite, a dark creature whose world seems entirely contrary to Bilbo's own, as their riddles repeatedly illustrate but Tolkien shows us the connection between these two worlds, a connection that is embodied in the ring, Gollum's ring that turns out to be the answer to Bilbo's last and most personal riddle. In his final act of pity and compassion, Bilbo retains his moral stature despite the desperate circumstances. That, too, is a turning point in his career, and possibly the most momentous one of all. Bilbo chooses light instead of darkness, and he will never turn back, even though he will have to leave his buttons and many other things behind him. In my next lecture, Rescued in the Wild, by the Wild, I will look at Tolkien's complicated representation of the denizens of the wild, including the wargs, the eagles, and Bjorn. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed!